will, let's uh, start with the reading of God's word. We are going to be in John chapter 5, John chapter 5, verses 19 through 24. We'll just start with the reading of that passage before we get into our sermon. John chapter 5, verses 19 through 24 says this. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all, he is, all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. That is the word of the Lord. Let us uh, pray as we get into this. Father, this is your time. This is your word. We are willing vessels that are partaking in this time of worship to, and we seek to do so in the spirit and in truth. God, your word is perfect. It is everything we need for life and godliness. It, it uh, conforms us uh, to the image of your son. It, it grows us in truth and grace and love. And it is, it's a beautiful, wonderful thing to know that you, the word, became flesh and dwelt among us uh, is marvelous it's it's wonderful it's it's a beautiful thing for us to to see the image of the invisible God Lord in this time we pray that your word goes forth clearly that it falls on fertile soil that it takes root in the hearts of your people that they hear your voice and they follow you may my words fall by the wayside and may your words ring true and we pray and ask for this in your son Jesus name amen all right, so church, as we've been uh, going through the gospel according to John, I've been reading and studying along with Pastor and reading books, and, and I've, I've greatly appreciated this time. Uh, the gospel of John is, is a little different than the, the, what we call the synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the fact that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they kind of um, tell a similar account of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, they're, they're real similar in that sense, but the Gospel of John was written at a later time and was meant to combat the, the heresies that had, had started to take hold in the church uh, that denied the deity of Christ, the fact that he is God in the flesh. And so the passage that we're in today has that uh, within it, and so that's something that we're going to spend some time talking about. Now with that in mind, there are going to be just a few theological terms that, I'm, that I plan on using that... Um, you know, maybe foreign to you potentially, but uh, I believe they are needed for the sake of clarity. Uh, so we'll talk about them, bring them up, we'll go through it and, and keep moving. But uh, I, I do believe they are important for us today. So my desire in this time as we walk through these six verses is that we all come to a greater understanding of the, the triune God that we serve because of the way Jesus has revealed himself to us in this passage. And so as we do that, we gain a stronger footing and, and foundation upon which we stand. Uh, and and that's, a, that's always a wonderful thing for us to, to come to that conclusion. So with that in mind, uh, our sermon summary is this. Uh, 
God has revealed himself to us in the Son, and in him we find eternal life. God has revealed himself to us in the Son, and in him we find eternal life. So as we do this, let's first look at verse 19. Uh, I want to reread it, and then we're going to just kind of walk through the verse and and, uh, see what God has for us in this passage. Uh, Verse 19 says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. So uh, if, if you're like me, as you read this, there's times where there are apparent contradictions where scripture looks like it, maybe it's saying one thing and then another place it says something else. Uh, and, and I say that because when it says that Jesus said that he can do nothing of his own accord, uh, this, this kind of brings that to mind. It, it piques my interest. Why can't he do that? In verse 17 and 18, what was mentioned uh, last week and the uh, week before that was that Jesus had staked his claim uh, with him being equal with God. Uh, let, let me read those words in verse 17. He says this, my father is working until now, and I am working. As he said this in verse 18, the, Jew, the Jewish leaders of this time recognized what he was saying, that he was claiming to be the son of God and having equality with God. So there was, for them, they, they recognized exactly what he was saying. In our English translation, it doesn't quite give us the same feel. Uh, a better way for us to kind of see this play out that, that may not be a word-for-word translation would be, saying something like this, the father has always worked and so has the son, right? That, essentially, that's what he's saying from eternity past until now, the father has been working, I've been doing the same thing. Essentially, that's what we're hearing and that's what the Jews, the Jewish leaders heard in their time. But when you hear that, that Jesus has always worked and he's always been there, but then he, we see in this verse that he says, well, I can't do anything of my own accord. If you're like me, a little thick-headed, sometimes uh, things are a little harder to understand. And I'm like, well, what is, how, do I, how do I harmonize these two things? Because there could potentially be some, um, some division there, something that, that's not quite making sense. So this comes up to the theological terms that I wanted to use. What I, what I want to do is just kind of put things in their proper categories. As, 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 the, as God describes himself and speaks of himself, there's different ways that he describes himself, and we have to recognize those categories and, and place these thoughts within those things. Uh, so different teachings come from different parts of scripture, and, and uh, that's something that we want to recognize. So I say that to say this, there are two uh, things that are mentioned in these verse 17, 18, and 19, and moving forward, uh, concerning the Trinity. And, and what we see here is, in verses 17 and 18, we see the ontological Trinity, uh, being described, and then in verses 19 onward, economic trinity. Now, those are just fancy words, uh, so don't, don't get caught up in them, but ontological or ontology is a study of being, right? Who is the trinity? Who is God, right? That's what's being discussed in ontology. Uh, economic has this feel of, of working, roles, parts. If you think of home ec, right? How, what are the parts of the home, and how do you make things work well? Uh, what we see with the ontology is Jesus in verse 17 and 18 describing who he is, right? He, he has said he is God, essentially is what he said the way that he said the Father was working and so am I. He is telling us who he is. This is ontological language. Uh, like I said, don't, don't focus too hard on that, but that's what that is. Moving forward from verse 19 on, we get, uh, we get his discussion in regards to the economic trinity. 
Uh, and like I said, this is describing the roles that God plays in his interactions with man and redeeming him uh, in his judgment of man and all that. So we see in verses 17 and 18, we see who God is, who Jesus is. 19 through 24, we get to see what Jesus does. That's, that's the distinction that's being made. So hopefully that's clear. I kind of wanted to make sure that we establish that because it's easy to look at these verses and kind of come to those conclusions because there's many times where Jesus is describing himself as God, others time where he's describing himself as a servant and he's making himself lowly. And so we can kind of mix up those two categories and not realize that Jesus makes these distinctions himself. And so we have to read his word for what it is and come to those same conclusions. <clears throat> so what this actually speaks of when we look at verses 19 onward of, of him not doing anything of his own accord, this is not Jesus speaking of himself being in bondage or being lesser in his role, uh, anything like that. What this is actually telling us is that there, there is harmony, there is unity in the Godhead as they interact with man, right? As the Father sends the Son, the Son obeys the Father, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and brings in his people, there is unity in that. So Jesus has no intention of having his own agenda, right? His agenda is of God. Everything that he does is of God. And I, I believe an, uh, a human way that we can relate to this, if I was to try to illustrate this for us to make it make potentially a little more sense, uh, bring it down to a human level, if we think of our, our family dynamic, right? When we're in our home, um, for example, for myself, I'm not a big spender, and I think Pastor, some of y'all probably know this, I tend to be a cheapskate, but, uh, but there are times where I'm like, man, I want to get this or get that, and, um, you know, as I look at that purchase, it looks desirable, it, it's pleasing to the eye, and I, and I want to make it, uh, I have to remind myself, well, what does, how does this affect my family, right? It, we, are, we are a unit, we have a, a single goal in mind to help uh, raise these kids, to provide for them, to have a, a, a flourishing home, is this affecting that in some kind of way? So I'm not going to do something of my own accord. I'm doing something with, with the uh, family in mind, with me and my wife. We, we are one, uh, united in the flesh when we got married, but we have one goal in mind. And that's, that's similar to what we see with what Jesus is saying here. There is not individual goals in mind. There's a single goal. There's a single task as Jesus came to earth, there was one task in mind. He came to seek and save the lost, right? And so he had no personal agenda in and of himself uh, that, that would be different than what the Father has. Uh, so what we see here and what we know to be true about Christ in this passage is that he, he speaks of this unity with the Father, his submission to the Father in his relation uh, with man. And this is mentioned over and over again uh, all over Scripture uh, and John is mentioned multiple times. If we continue reading John chapter 5, he mentions it a couple times there. Uh, but I want to rattle off a few of these just for the sake of uh, reinforcing this idea. In John 8, uh, verse 19, Jesus says this, <clears throat> excuse me, if you knew me, you would know my father also. John 10, 30 says, I and the father are one, right? We are united. We are in harmony. We, there is perfect love between us. John 14, 9 says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father, right? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Paul says this similar language in Colossians 1, 15, when he says he is the image of the invisible God. The writer of Hebrews in verse 3, as we heard earlier, he is the radiance of the glory of God 
and the exact imprint of his nature. When we see Jesus, we see God in the flesh. Right? This is what we are saying. This is what Jesus is saying himself. And since they are in one accord, in perfect harmony and unity, this is true. What Jesus says is true. We see this throughout scripture. And what Jesus says is he can do nothing of his own accord because his desire is to manifest the glory of God. Right? As our passage in Hebrew says, he is a radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint or representation of God's nature. I think another great passage that speaks to the, once again, this, the roles of the Trinity within creation is, in, is found in chapter 3 of John. John three sixteen through 18, we get an example of the Father, the Father's love, the Son being sent, uh, salvation being made possible uh, in those verses. And, and kind of a summation of our message today is found here as well. Let me read those verses for us, John three sixteen through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. The father sent and revealed himself to us through the Son, and in him we find eternal life. I think there's another great example of this. Um, I, as I was reading and studying, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get past this, and, and there's a ton of scripture that I've referenced so far, but I just think so much of it is uh, applicable to what we're talking about, and, and I don't want to overlook it, but Philippians 2, 6-11 is another example of what we read in John uh, three and what we'll, we'll see in our passage today. But let me read that for us and just kind of meditate on these words. Just really listen to them as you hear them. Uh, this is speaking of Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. This is a beautiful, beautiful passage. I, I love it. It is thought that that passage there was a, a song uh, during the early church that they would sing, uh, and, and I could see why. It, it's just it's beautiful truth. So what we see in this verse is that Jesus has revealed to us the nature of God. He submitted himself to the role of servant in order that he could redeem a fallen people. This role of service not only is a position of humility, but it is also a position of authority. He can only do what he sees the Father do, uh, but let us look at this next, the next couple of verses to see what, what the Father is revealing to the Son, what authority he has, and, and um, what not. So verses 20 through 23, let's look at these verses and continue walking through them, um, and we'll read them as we go. Verse 20 says this, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. I want to stop there. The first thing that we're going to look at here is the Father loves the Son. 
but I think this is easy to just kind of gloss over and just take it for granted, but the Father loves the Son. There is love in the Godhead, from the Father to the Son, from the Son to the Father, the Holy Spirit. There is perfect love there. It is, there is no greater love than, what, than that love there. It's eternal, it's perfect, it's beautiful. And we can see that Jesus speaks of this love, the apostles speak of this love, uh, the prophets spoke of this love, uh, but the Father speaks of this love as well in Scripture. So I want to take the words from his mouth. In Matthew 3, verse 17, uh, at, at Jesus' baptism, the clouds part, the dove descends, and then we get this verse. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, my Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. Right? We hear the voice of God, the Father, speaking to the Son, telling him, I love you and I am pleased with you. What you are doing, I, I love you and I am pleased with you. This is it's fantastic. I, I, I love the picture of this because when we think of ourselves, we are co-heirs with Christ. We have been clothed with Christ's righteousness as his people. The love that the Father has for the Son is the same love that he has for us. It's, it's, it's beautiful. I, I am baffled by it. I, I love it. So that's one example. Another example of the Father's love for the Son we find in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5. This is at the Transfiguration. Uh, it says this, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Right, same language is being used here, but it's just a reiteration. He loves the Son. Right, the Father loves the Son. This is, this is evidence through scripture. The passage goes on in verse 20 to say, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the son gives life to whom he will. All right, so these are the, the greater works. What are the greater works that are done? Well, so far what we've seen, some of the things we've seen was Jesus turning, well, for one, the, the incarnation is a, is a marvelous event in and of itself. But in the Gospel of John, the things that get called out are the, the water turning into wine. Uh, we see the, the invalid that was healed recently. But greater things than these will happen, right? Not only did he turn water to wine and uh, heal physical ailments, but Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead in uh, John chapter 11. And in John chapter 11, Lazarus eventually, right, he's going to die another death. Uh, he was raised to life. But then in John chapter 20, uh, what we see with Jesus is that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that was upon us was placed on him. He was killed, buried. Three days later, those wounds that he felt, we were healed by those. He, he was raised from the dead, right? This, this was the greatest work that, that, that's ever been done. Anything, that's the greatest thing that, that we can say, that the innocent, though he who knew no sin became sin so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. That is the, the greatest work that, that we have in recorded history. It is a, a beautiful thing for God to, to show that through the Son and for us to marvel at it is, is what this passage is telling us. These greater works will be done and we will marvel at those things. Uh, not only will we marvel at them, another thing that is mentioned in this passage is the, uh, the Father has granted judgment to the Son. This is, this is what's mentioned uh, here in verse 20, uh, 20, excuse me, 22 is uh, where this is mentioned. 
Now, this example of Jesus, Jesus getting this judgment is given to us in Matthew. One of the places it's mentioned is in Matthew 25. I want to read that passage to kind of wrap our minds around the type of judgment that the Son will be, it has been granted. It says this uh, in Matthew 25, verses 31 through 33. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep at his right hand, which is a place of honor, but the goats on the left, which is a place of, of dishonor. So th- this is the passage that speaks of the, the judgment that has been granted to the Son. The Son is not only granted the ability to give life, as we see with the raising of Lazarus, um, But those who do not hear his word and believe in the one who sent him, they will be judged accordingly. They will be condemned for an eternity to the place of torment, to the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's able to give life, and he's also able um, to pronounce judgment righteously. These are are one and the same. If he's able to give life, he's, he's able to take it away as well. Uh, but he hasn't been given this just flippantly. He was granted this judgment so that all will honor him, is what our passage says. It says that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, this passage in layman's terms, uh, if, if it's difficult to understand for you, potentially it's in essence saying if you cannot honor the, if you cannot honor the Son, you will not honor the Father. If you do honor the son, then you must honor, excuse me, if you must, if you will honor the father, then you must honor the son, right? You can't honor one without the other. Uh, it kind of reminds me when people talk about I'm a Christian and I, and I love Jesus, but uh, I, I don't love his church, right? I, I, I kind of do my own thing. I, I go to church. Me and my family have church at home or, or whatever the case may be. You're not, you're not having church. That's not the way church works. Uh, I hate to break it to you, but uh, that, that's not church. The church is the body of believers. Uh, we are the bride of Christ. It's, we are members of one body. This is, it's, it's like if somebody said, man, I, I love you to death. I, will, I would, you know, I, it, you need anything, you come to me. But your wife, eh, I, don't, I don't like her so much. Uh, you know, I, that, 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 that doesn't happen, right? It doesn't happen in real life. It doesn't happen... When it, con- when it concerns the bride of Christ, it's, it's, it doesn't work that way. If, if you love him, you love his people. If you love the father, you love the son. If you love the son, you love the father. If you love the father and the son, you love his bride. That's all the good and the bad, right? I mean, our spouses, I won't put it the other way, but our spouses love us in spite of our faults, right? So uh, we, we got we to show that same grace uh, to the church. But yeah, this can't be done any other way. The, as, as far as who God is, how we are to honor him, how, how he is loved by the Father, none of this can work any other way. God, the triune God, is harmonious, is united and indivisible. There, there's no separating, uh, no separation of God. God isn't made of parts, right? He is, he is one essence. God, the Lord our God is one, uh, but he coexists in three persons. We, the Bible tells us that. Uh, how do we understand it? By faith, right? The word tells us, so it's, it's true. Um, but we have to believe what God has said about himself, just like we make these distinctions with who God is and the roles that he plays within creation. Uh, these things may sound 
like there's some tension between them, but this is, this is the way God chose to speak to us, and we trust that. I say that to say this. Uh, I want to kind of give a, a, a definition for the Trinity. Uh, we see this in our, uh, in our confession. We've been going through the confession for the last two and a half, three months, maybe four. I don't know. But uh, in chapter two, it speaks of the Trinity. And so this language, I'm, I'm going to read this section for, it, for you just because I believe it's, 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 uh, it's really good, but it, it's very specific and sometimes it can be a little difficult. But this is the way God describes himself. Uh, so listen to this. This divine and infinite being consists of three persons, the Father, the Word, or the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three have the same substance, power, and eternity, each having the whole divine essence without this essence being divided. All three are infinite and without beginning and are therefore only one God who is not to be divided in nature or being. Yet these three are distinguished by several distinctive characteristics and personal relations. And here's the, the, the kicker, I guess you could say. This truth of the Trinity is the foundation of all our fellowship with God and of our comforting dependence on him. It's a mouthful, I know, but it's, 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 it's good. If you don't have a confession, we got plenty of them. We can get you one. Uh, it's just a, a summarization of scripture that we believe works well. It, it's consistent, and uh, it, it helps us defend our faith because of the things that it says. So if you don't have one, like I said, we can get you one. But this isn't the easiest thing to understand. The Trinity isn't the easiest thing to understand. God being in the Son, being man and God, not very easy to understand either. These are difficult topics, um, but uh, we, we must trust what God has said about himself, right? God is not like us, so for us to describe anything in creation to try to understand him, it just doesn't work, right? We are finite. God is infinite. Uh, we are not all-knowing. He is all-knowing. Uh, we have limited power and ability. He's unlimited in his power and ability, right? There, there are just very large distinctions between us and God, and we have to try to use his word to define what, the way he's described himself. Uh, but it, it is difficult to do. So what we must do is study the word, continue reading it, and by faith accept what he has said about himself to be true. All right, that, that's, that's the calling of every Christian. That's what we are supposed to do. Read the word and, and um, consistently find truths about who God is in the way that he says himself. So if this is true, what we've seen about Jesus, uh, the Godhead, the Trinity, if, if these things are true of what he's, he's said so far in these first five verses, uh, what do we do with that? What do we do with the knowledge that we have that he came to do, do nothing of his own accord, that all honor's been given to him, all judgment's been given to him. He does only what he sees the Father do, right? All this discussion is had before the Jewish leaders, those who do not believe him. But what, what do we do with this knowledge that we have of God's word today? What are we to do with that? Well, I believe Jesus answers that for us in verse 24. As, like I said, as he's talking to these Jewish leaders, uh, this answer, I believe, is something that we should uh, challenge ourselves with that that should kind of shake us to the core Jesus says this truly truly I say to you whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life he does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life 
right? Truly, truly, I kind of passed by this in, in verse 19, but I want to touch on it in this verse. Um, these words are literally translated amen, amen, is, is what these, these words truly, truly means. When you have this phrase in scripture, it's, it's emphasizing the, the, the absolute truth in what's being said. Not that everything else isn't true that's said, but it's almost like a, if you don't hear anything else, you got to hear this. You have to take this. You can, you can write this, this, you can take this check and cash it, right? There, there is no, nothing more certain than what you're about to hear. I, I heard a preacher one time say, more certain than the sun rising is what God is saying in his word. And, and that's, that's, the, that's the emphasis that's being placed on this. This is a matter of life and death. Right, that, that's what Jesus is saying with these words when he says, truly, truly, I say to you. So what does he follow that up with saying? He says, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Right, this, is of, this is a matter of life and death, is what he's saying. Who has eternal life? Whoever hears and believes. Right, whoever hears and believes has eternal life. There's not a five-step program, uh, do these things and you'll be saved. You don't come up here to the front and pray a prayer. None of that stuff saves you. None, none of those things make you a Christian. This, this statement that Jesus is making here is, is just that. As, as I was studying, this was something that was truly profound to me, is that Jesus is making this, making this as a statement. He's not challenging the people with, hey, if you do these things, you'll have eternal life. He is telling them, this is who you are. This is, these are indicators of what a believer is. You hear my word, and you believe the one who sent me. It, you, you either are or you aren't. There, there's no two ways about it. Uh, <clears throat> and the reason I say that, what we see in our passage, but we've seen Jesus talk about this throughout the gospel already. John 3, 3, when he's talking to Nicodemus, he tells him, you can't even see the kingdom unless you're born again, right? Unless you're born again, you can't even see the kingdom. So you can't, you can't hear my words. You can't believe in the one who sent me unless you're mine. John 10, 27 through 28, Jesus says these words, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Right, this hearing that comes isn't just the, the sound waves that are coming out of these speakers from my voice. It's, it's an actual perception of what's being said. It's a supernatural thing that's going on. Right, this is something we cannot do in and of ourselves. This is a, a gift of God. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Right? He saw the scattered sheep, and those are the ones he was seeking for. He wasn't coming for the righteous. He was coming for the sick, the lowly, the least of these. Those are the ones that he sought out. And those are the ones that he came to save. The word goes forth, and we either hear it or we don't. It, there's, there's no two ways about it. So the question we must ask ourselves is, do we hear it? Right? As God's word is going forth, do I hear it? Do I hear God's word speaking to me today? Not only do I hear it, but do I believe it? Now, most of you I know, and most of you I know where you stand before God, uh, so with that being said, I have another question to ask you. If we hear it and we believe it, do we live like we've heard it and we believe it? Right? Is, is, do, do we, if we know it, if we've heard it, we believe it, do we live like we believe it? 
Now, as I close, I got a couple of more questions, but I want to preface those questions by saying this. When we're when we preach from the pulpit, from any pulpit that, that, that claims the name of the Lord, we have a duty before God that we are a herald of God's truth. We are not here for ourselves. We have been called by God to proclaim his word, the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the intention of us. We're not here to look good, uh, to, to ruffle feathers, none of that. It is to preach God's truth. That, that's first and foremost. That's beginning and end. That's, that, should the only, that should be the only thing going on from any pulpit today. Uh, unfortunately, that's not the case in a lot of them, but that is what we are called to, right? That's what every pastor is called to. When we come up here, that is the understanding that we have when we, or that should be the understanding we have when we come into the pulpit. So I say that when I, when I ask you these previous questions, not, not to be shocking, I just want us to think uh, a little bit more about these things. So if you've heard his word and you believe in the one who sent him, you have eternal life. Where I can stand confidently from this pulpit upon God's word and promise you that because God has promised it himself. If you hear his word and you believe in the one who sent him, he said it himself. I'm not saying anything new, but I, I promise you this. This is true for you, right? You have that assurance. That, that is there for you. Nothing can change that. Nothing can rattle it. Nothing can take you out of his hand. I need you to recognize that as we continue on. That is a beautiful truth. If the father loves the son and the son has been granted this authority and he is saying these things, he is doing these things, this is true. This is absolutely true. And we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't waver from that. So none of these things that I'm saying are to, to make you question your salvation. If you hear God's word and you believe the one who sent him, you have salvation. There is nothing more certain in this life than that. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That, that, is, that is a certain thing. We have, been, we have passed from judgment, from death unto life. But with that in mind, with that in mind, I, I challenge you with this. I challenge myself with this as I stand up here, be in the voice box, right? This is, this is we're, I'm preaching to myself just as I'm preaching to you. If we call ourselves Christians, we call ourselves followers of Christ, uh, whatever title you want to use, shouldn't we be trusting and believing in him more? Shouldn't that be what we're doing? If Jesus does nothing of his own accord, but only what the Father shows him, shouldn't we be doing nothing of our own accord, but only what the Father has shown us through the Son? Am I pushing a personal agenda? Or am I making Christ known? Do I love my enemies? Do I pray for their souls? Am I dying to self daily, relying fully on the Holy Spirit for life and godliness? Do I desire to know more about this God that I claim to love and trust? As I study God's word and, and we come to these conclusions and I see his truth, something else that I see that is certain for all of us is where we lack in our walk with the Lord is where we lack in trust in our Lord. It's true for all of us. Any sin we commit is because we want to. It's never accidental. We, we always do it because we want to. Any sin 
is saying, I know better than God. I don't trust him with this. That, that's, that's what sin is. I have, I have transgressed his law. He has told me, don't do this, and I'm saying I'm doing it anyways. I don't trust him in that area. I don't believe what he says is true in that area of my life. Where we lack in our walk is where we lack in our trust of the Lord. May we all become more desperate for the Lord to convict us and to strengthen us to believe his word and the one who sent him so we can enjoy the life that he has called us to live to the glorious praise of our triune God. Let us pray.